for us to be successful as a country in not only reducing emissions, but also taking advantage of the major economic opportunity that is present for us in the low carbon economy as Canadians, it's going to be critical that we get support across the political spectrum for uh, decarbonization. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 087, number 87 of the Flux Capacitor. This episode was recorded in mid-November 2023 on Zoom. My guest today is... Michael Bernstein, Executive Director at Clean Prosperity. Michael joined me for a conversation about the work and priorities of Clean Prosperity. We talk about the importance of good modeling of net zero pathways, carbon markets and the need for carbon contracts for difference, and carbon management, both carbon capture and direct air capture. We also talk about the politics of climate policy and the need for support across the political spectrum for climate action. We close out our conversation with a great book recommendation for an addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Michael Bernstein. Michael, welcome to the podcast. It's something that we've been trying to do for a while, uh, but it, it's great to, to finally connect. Again, this is going to be one of those podcasts where uh, you and I have had uh, you know tons of conversations over the last couple of years, um, uh, and I just wanted an opportunity to, to hit record and, and share that with the listener. So that's the plan wow. here. So yeah, let me start by saying welcome. Thanks very much. Look, it's great to be with you. I really enjoyed the podcast. I've been listening to it for a long time, and it's a privilege to be with you. So let's start then with uh, a, a bit of an explanation for the listener, and uh, let's uh, get you to tell the listener a little bit about Clean Prosperity. Yeah, sure. Well, Clean Prosperity has been around 10 years. You know, Our focus really is around what we consider pragmatic, market-oriented climate solutions that both reduce emissions mm -hmm. and grow the economy. Um, what that means in practice is we work in a couple of specific areas. We spend a lot of our time thinking about the carbon markets. So that would include carbon pricing. It would include uh, offset systems, border carbon adjustments, contracts for difference, all of the things you need to create a functional carbon market in Canada, which we think is really the underpinning or the foundation of uh, an effective climate strategy. So that's the first, the first area. Mm -hmm. um, the second area is that uh, we work a lot in carbon management, which we'll define as um, carbon capture and storage, but also carbon dioxide removal technologies, um, which we're going to need uh, an increasing share of in order to stay within safe limits of, um, of warming. Right. Uh, the third area is we're increasingly involved in net zero planning. Um, and so thinking about what appropriate targets are, thinking about issues like carbon budgets, doing modeling of different net zero pathways, and then the fourth area is that we spend 
a lot of our time working with conservative politicians all around the country. Um, we think that's an area that's underserved by the climate community. Uh, many of our staff actually are conservatives, have a conservative background, mm -hmm. and we think a small C conservative approach to the climate file um, can be is an important kind of additional uh, lens that we bring to the table. So uh, those are the four areas where we work vertically. And then kind of the way we think about it, we see ourselves as having kind of a table that defines our work. So those are our verticals, if you will. And then in terms of regions, we work today federally. Uh, we do work in Alberta. Uh, well, actually, it's now Western Canada. We've just started doing a little bit of work in Saskatchewan just in the last couple of weeks here. Okay. Uh, and uh, we also have a program we've just opened up in Ontario, which is also fairly new. So most of our history was working federally, but we're now working in uh, Western Canada as well as Ontario. All right. Well, okay. So so lots on the go. Some of this is new to me, that your, your fourth area of focus uh, the, the conservative one, and, and I'd like to, to pull on that thread a, a little bit. But but first, maybe if we can drill down on some of those other ones, because, man, there's a lot there, and there's a lot of things that are happening in this space right now. Why don't we start with um, the sort of net zero planning and modeling? Um, just maybe give us a sense of, of kind of what work is taking place in this space. And I'm, I'm asking uh, purely out of self-interest because uh, yeah. <laughs> I've, yeah. I've had some concerns about modeling that's been done up until now. And I, I really have some questions about how modeling is done because uh, it, 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 it needs to be good given that we, we make uh, pretty important critical and long-term decisions based upon modeling. So yeah. I'd be interested your, to hear your perspectives on modeling and then get a sense of kind of what clean prosperity is doing in this space. Yeah, well, I, I fully agree with what you just said there. I think the a big part of our motivation is realizing that there seems to be a lot of gaps uh, in the, when, when policy decisions are made, you would hope that that could be based on really solid data, uh, modeling and other kinds of data. And today, um, it actually is very little publicly available in terms of modeled net zero pathways. Right. Um, there have been some studies done in the last couple of years, and that's been really important and helpful. But even the studies that are out there, it's often very difficult to know what the underlying assumptions were in those models um, or to understand why one report differs from another report in terms of their results and, and what led to that. So our interest in this area is primarily motivated by a desire to see how we can better use modeling to inform the policy conversation in Canada. And one of the ways we're doing that is we have a, a uh, we have a, a fairly substantial project we're doing with Navius Research, our partner in this effort, and they're one of the key modeling firms in Canada, as I'm sure you know, yep. um, to look at a wide range of modeled pathways. So imagine one that is has some of the most optimistic assumptions you could put in about various uh, key uh, electricity generation sources and their cost declines over time, solar, wind, et cetera. Another scenario that we call a renewables only scenario that says, what if you actually took seriously the idea that we were only going to use renewables to make up new generation? Like how would that actually work out? Yeah. And you know, uh, as another bookend, what if we took seriously you know, some of the Canada energy regulators 
previous forecasts prior to this recent net zero study they've done that says oil and gas is going to continue to grow in Canada uh, through 2050. What happens in that situation? What happens if we're actually really successful at driving down the cost of hydrogen and that that becomes a significant part of the energy system? And let's look at all of these pathways, compare them, and also run them through a wide range of sensitivities. So what you end up with in the end is hundreds of scenarios. Um, and trying to sort through what's common, what's different about them, how do assumptions change the results? Not with the idea of saying this is the right pathway, but trying to help inform the conversation on this is what we know, this is what we don't know. Um, and some of these scenarios that people are really pushing for maybe have some unintended consequences. So in short, that's, <clears throat> that's the effort we're undertaking. Um, now modeling, I'll just add that modeling can only ever be one source of information here. It's only as good as the assumptions. You've got to talk to people operating these spaces. Um, and so that's part of what we're trying to do is in the next year, we'll be releasing a series of reports that are not final reports. We're calling them discussion papers where we're going to seek feedback from people who work in the energy system to say, what, it, what, what looks right and wrong about these modeled scenarios? What do you think we're missing? What assumptions aren't captured by the model? How do we improve these? And then lastly, we're going to try to map a lot of those scenarios uh, with what we're calling a downscaling exercise that actually looks at the underlying infrastructure you would need in some of these model pathways, because it's all very well and good, as I'm sure you would appreciate to say, oh, we need to double or one and a half times the electricity generation, just to use that example. But what does the transmission network look like in that yep. situation? Yep. You know? And uh how much, uh, where does it go? How many new projects do we need? So we're trying to learn more about that too. It's just part of an effort, uh, hopefully as a contribution to this, to a broader discussion that's happening. Yeah, that I, and it'll, I think it'll be a contribution that's that's that's, that's much needed. There's a, a lot uh, uh, taking place in, in this space that that is um, dealing with modeling, uh, the clean electricity regulations that, you know, for the listener, we're we're recording this just a couple of weeks after the the uh, deadline for comment on Canada Gazette one on those. Uh, we we had some concerns about just the modeling that was done that that, that supported that. Um, you know, one of our particular concerns was uh, the model might look great from a national perspective, right? But, right. but you know, as you know, That's man, the, the resource endowment uh, and the energy systems are so vastly different across the country. So, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I suspect that might be something that will be included in the work that you'll be doing with Navius. Yeah, well, so those those policy questions are ultimately what we want to drive towards. And um, and it's absolutely right that people are using sometimes the same model, sometimes the Navius model yeah. to give you completely different results. So so part of our interest and in Navius has been really good about working with this on this is trying to not necessarily say this is the right answer, yeah. but here's a range of answers and why they're different. Right. right. And to spark a discussion. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Hey, Michael, one of the things I ask folks to come on the podcast is about their journey. Um, I always make the joke when you were a kid on the playground, did you always dream of one day leading clean prosperity or, or right. was there a different pathway from the playground to where you are today? Yeah, there was quite a different pathway for me. So, um, you know, I started my career after undergraduate working in the international development field. I spent a year in Tanzania immediately after graduating from university. Oh, wow. Living in, yeah, living in a rural town there and just trying to understand what life was like so I could try to come to some uh, 
try to inform some ideas about what I would do after that to try to support people um, in communities like where I was living. Yeah. Um, and that actually uh, brought me down a path that I didn't expect around caring a lot more or getting a lot more interested in agriculture and the food system because everybody I was living with were farmers. That's mm -hmm. That was the product they had. And that's how they could, um, you know, that's what they were looking for was markets for their products. So that took me into the, to the food system. Um, and, you know, I eventually ended up as uh, the CEO of a, a local food company in the Toronto area where I'm based. So I did do some additional work in development for a while, got a master's degree, um, did some management consulting as well. I worked at McKinsey for, for about three years. And then, but the, but the, uh, Kind of the interest in agriculture that had been sparked after college while living abroad in Tanzania had always stayed with me, um, both the international issues around food and then the local issues around food. So I ended up uh, as the CEO of a company called Mama Earth Organics, a food delivery business in the Toronto area. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, really interesting small business, had about 100 staff, we're delivering to over 10,000 customers. Um, and did that for about five years. And, you know, during that time, towards the latter part of that tenure, I started to get more and more interested and concerned about climate policy. Um, and there were a couple of triggers for that. One was actually seeing the impact that unusual weather behavior was having on our farms. Right. I remember our peach farmer losing almost all of her trees or almost losing all of her trees one year because of a late frost. So I saw that going on, uh, you know, I had young kids. So that started to get me thinking about the future as it does for a lot of folks and started to read more about the state of our climate policy and thought, you know what, I think I need to do something even more directly addressing the challenge of climate change. Uh, thought I might go in to work for uh, a clean tech company of some kind, because um, that was my my experience at that point in business and working in a, sort of a startup, maybe a, a few years more established than a startup, but in that startup ecosystem, but came to the conclusion that, you know, policy was really where I could have the most impact. And so pivoted as I was learning more about the climate space into policy and was fortunate enough to find an opportunity at Clean Prosperity to help lead the organization. And that's where I've been for the last five years. Very cool. Very cool. So let's uh, let's jump back to uh, to some of those focus areas of the organization. Um, carbon markets. Yeah. Carbon markets, which um, uh, I think, and, I, and we've talked about this in the past, are, are going to be, be absolutely critical for us to be able to make any significant progress. Um, so uh, what's the state of carbon markets, um, both here and abroad, right? Because there's yeah. there's there's also, I think, the need over the long term to have some kind of an international system. But we, we haven't even sorted out kind of carbon markets here in Canada, have we? No, we haven't. Uh, we've done some encouraging things and there's still a lot of potential in the market. Yeah. Um, some people think of us as actually a global leader in, uh, based on some of the design elements of our carbon pricing system. But it's true, there are also some real challenges that we're facing in Canada. Right. Um, so you know, I guess one of the first things to say here is we know carbon pricing because of its flexibility <laughs> is the lowest cost way to reduce emissions. That is not really in question. Um, but of course, it has become uh, a politically hot topic in the last few years, especially the consumer part of carbon pricing. Right. And I have to say, you know, when we think about the carbon markets, we're actually mostly focused on the industrial 
side of carbon pricing, where, uh, of course, electricity and heavy industry and oil and gas would be uh, would be placed. Um, but I think where we're at uh, is that we we have a system that uh, has the potential to work well if it could remain in place over the long term. But in the last couple of years, we've layered on, the federal government has layered on in particular, a lot of additional regulations that interact and in many cases adversely affect the pricing system. And that would include the clean electricity regulation. That would certainly include the proposed oil and gas cap. We don't have details on that. and you know, our view as an organization is carbon pricing is called the cornerstone of the climate plan in the federal emissions reduction plan, and it ought to be treated as such. We ought to leverage it as much as we possibly can to get emissions because that's what keeps costs down. Um, and that's what allows us, while still achieving the objectives we have, we actually believe that a lot of the objectives uh, the objective of the CER, the clean electricity regulation, and of the oil and gas cap could both be achieved leveraging the carbon pricing system, the industrial carbon pricing systems we have. Um, and then, of course, there's another element which you and I have talked about in the past, which is carbon contracts for difference, difference. right? Um, which has become a, kind of a, a buzzword. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, if there's sexy topics in the wonky circles we operate in, I think this would be one of them. Uh, and this is an area where our organization is doing a lot of work because, you know, if we're going to make the promise of carbon pricing function well for uh, industrial emitters who need to put large sums of capital on the table today to achieve those reductions that we all want to see, see in the next five, six, seven years, um, they've got to have confidence that pricing is going to be there right. and that the carbon credit markets that operate within pricing systems, mm-hmm. which is a, a revenue, potential revenue generator for these companies, is something they can rely on. So it really comes down to being able to rely on the rules of the carbon pricing system as set out to unlock investment in decarbonization. I think if we can do that, if we can get carbon contracts for difference, and if we can think about how to fully leverage industrial pricing and really be more, I think a little bit more tailored with what regulations we we complement that with complement pricing with we'll be in a better spot as a country so that's a you know we could we could probably spend our whole podcast talking about carbon markets but i'd say as an overview that is where i see us today with a lot of potential we've done some things right uh but we have more to go uh to really realize the 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 potential that's uh that we could achieve achieve yeah and you're right i mean carbon contracts for differences definitely the um you know the uh, uh the flavor uh, of the month right now in 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 uh, policy wonk uh climate climate policy wonk circles um but you know maybe for the listener if you could kind of unpack that a little bit uh in terms of how something like that would would actually uh, would actually work uh and i mean it's it's clear that it's designed to to give that that uh, sense of uh, uh, stability uh, over the longer term, on the one hand, um, but on the other hand, doesn't it kind of, uh, I guess, intentionally ties the hands of, of uh, future governments, right? Yeah, it's which, a really important which, so that people yeah. can make long-term decisions, right? That's right. Yeah, it's a really important question. So uh, it does it does create a financial penalty if 
future governments were to go ahead and cancel the industrial pricing system. And I want to be very clear about that. We're not talking about the consumer pricing system here. We're talking about the industrial system, which, of course, was first introduced in Alberta in 2007 Mm -hmm. and has a long history of support across the political spectrum. Um, But uh, it is true that it could restrict future governments. Maybe I can take just one step back and really explain exactly what we mean by contracts for difference uh, when we talk about it, because um, what what these, the the first thing I think to understand actually is that for an industrial emitter, um, whether it be an electricity generator or a cement kiln or a steel mill, they they do face a carbon price on a share of their emissions. And it's roughly 20%, depending on the jurisdiction. So that's the stick that everybody knows about in carbon pricing. But there also is a carrot in the carbon pricing system in the form of credits that these companies generate if they do deep decarbonization projects. And those credits can be sold to other emitters. And if the pricing system is functioning well, if the market is robust, those credits can be sold at something close to the headline price of carbon. Because if I decarbonize today and I have credits to sell and another facility, let's say, Francis, you run another facility and you're facing the prospect of paying $170 to the government in carbon pricing, you should be, in theory, happy to pay me $165, let's say, for my credit. You come out ahead and I make money. And it's those credits that would will really drive decarbonization decisions. If companies are confident that they can get a price approaching the headline price, then th- they have the the economics are there to incent them to actually go ahead with decarbonization. Right. So what the contracts for difference do is they they are a contractual agreement with between the government and a counterparty, presumably an industrial emitter. Who that says, look, there's a, we will agree on a set strike price, so to speak. Let's call that price $160 for sake of argument. So now that emitter knows whatever they go out and sell their credits for in the market, even if let's say they only get $100 for their credits, the government has agreed to top them up to that $160 price. So in that case, pay them $60 a ton for each credit they generate. And what's really critical here is then the emitter can have full confidence that no matter what happens in the market, they will receive that $160 a ton for their decarbonization project. Mm-hmm. And so that is not about, and notice that concern about the credit markets actually has nothing to do with a federal government changing. Now, this current government could be in power for the next couple of decades and emitters would still be uncertain about what value they can get from their credits. And so while there is a political angle to this that I fully acknowledge in that, you know, a future government wanting to fully unwind carbon pricing, industrial pricing could face a financial penalty they would have to pay out. This is just as much about, in fact, in my view, more about the idea of just giving emitters the confidence in the credit markets that the government says is the cornerstone of the climate plan Mm-hmm. Um, so that they can go ahead with decarbonization investments. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it it gives them the ability to 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 guarantee that their investment is not being is not going to be stranded. That's it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Anybody um, doing uh, carbon contracts for difference uh, elsewhere in the world? 
Yeah, well, there's there's all sorts of carbon contracts for difference, some of them in carbon markets, others outside of it. I mean, Alberta, as you probably know, had a successful contract for difference program in the electricity system, right? Not not too long ago. Uh, uh, but in terms of carbon markets, which is probably more of your question, um, there are some examples to draw on from, from Europe primarily. Okay. So you have the UK with a contracts for different company that they've set up that, that do contracts uh, largely in the electricity space, but now increasingly in, for other forms of uh, decarbonization technology, including uh, carbon uh, dioxide removal technologies. Mm -hmm. You've got the Netherlands that has a program. Germany has just announced something. Japan is also looking at doing a carbon contract uh, for difference program. So this is an idea that's picking up momentum around the world. Uh, and Canada, of course, has announced a pilot too through the Canada Growth Fund. Yep. And we have to see how that evolves. But I am hopeful that we will be among uh, a group of, of countries that are pressing forward with these contracts in order to realize decarbonization uh, potential. Right, right. Okay. Hey, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, carbon management. You said was one of the other areas of focus uh, for uh, for clean prosperity. What kind of work uh, uh, is the is the uh, the organization doing in this space? What are you trying to yeah. achieve? Yeah. So I, look, there's there's huge potential. For, first of all, let me just say. Carbon management can include both point source carbon capture and so that's about capturing emissions from smokestacks in most cases and preventing it from going in the atmosphere. Yep. And that's I'm drawing a distinction between that and actually pulling carbon out of the atmosphere that's already there right. in the form of carbon dioxide removal. And that's things like direct air capture. Um, but there's also a whole wide range of other technologies that can also produce negative emissions that are that are lesser known but are being developed. So our my, my own um, uh, focus within the carbon management sector has been to be part of a group that has founded a, a now sister organization in a sense to clean prosperity. I mean, it's a fully independent group, but just with a lot of uh, you know, we have a lot of common interests called Carbon Removal Canada. Mm -hmm. and, and Carbon Removal Canada, as you, as you know, just launched last week, actually, uh, where, as you say, we're talking in mid-November. Yep. Um, so launched earlier this month. Um, and that organization is all about figuring out how are we going to get the policies in Canada to uh, realize the, the potential that this country has to be a leader in the carbon dioxide removal space. Because when you when you look at the math, you realize that even if we are wildly successful at our net zero goals, we are still going to need hundreds of millions of tons of removals, yeah. pulling carbon out of the air yeah. by 2050. And that's an annual number every year and beyond. So that Carbon Removal Canada just released its first report and it's uh, it calculated that it's about 300 megatons a year mm -hmm. for Canada alone to do its share of removing carbon from the atmosphere and getting us back down to safe levels of warming. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be a whole separate advocacy effort thinking about what are the policies we need to actually incent that kind of activity in Canada, which... I know other countries are starting to also support, particularly the United States. And then, so that's Carbon Removal Canada. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then for clean, just to bring it back to clean prosperity, because I serve as board chair of Carbon Removal Canada. So yep. that's the capacity in which I, I'm involved in that organization. But to get back to clean prosperity, which is my actual job, uh, that there, of course, we also believe in the power of carbon dioxide removal. So there's there's some commonality with uh, with CRC, with Carbon Removal Canada. But we also talk about the potential for places like Alberta to build out an entire carbon management ecosystem that includes these negative emissions technologies, but also has shared infrastructure and storage sites with point source capture. Um, Because all of the modeling that we've been doing, you know, even in some of those scenarios that I talked about earlier in our conversation that are very aggressive around um, uh, phasing out the demand sources for fossil fuels, mm-hmm. it's still, you still need dozens and dozens of megatons of point source carbon capture. Yeah. And this is one area where you look at a place like Alberta and you say, this is a major, major opportunity for that province. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to require many billions of investment. It's going to require workers who understand how to work in the subsurface. Guess what? We have a lot of those in yeah. Western Canada. Yeah. Uh, you know, the companies that are currently in, in the fossil fuel sector have a lot of the expertise, have the balance sheets. Uh, so we think there's a major opportunity to kind of uh, uh, seize that new opportunity in a low carbon economy around carbon management that includes point source capture, includes negative emissions. And by the way, it also can support hydrogen production because, um, you know, you need to do carbon capture to produce so-called blue hydrogen, which is fossil-based hydrogen. And even if you're doing it in a a green, you know, a renewable-based so-called green hydrogen, you're still uh, separating hydrogen and oxygen. And that oxygen can be used in petrochemical plants, which is also a strength of Alberta. So there's kind of a carbon management economy uh, or, uh, that we can envision almost like a circular economy for carbon that you could that you could um, develop in Alberta with the right policies right nascent now because there's there's certainly the 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 kernels of, of what could be a, a, a future that's right that's right it's a future vision right it's something that would will take probably decades to realize but we've got to lay out a roadmap or at least a vision today if we think that we can be successful in capturing that opportunity in the future. Right. Are you getting traction? Uh, an indication that, that uh, governments are, are interested in developing a roadmap and, and developing a vision for that, for that, uh, that, that, that carbon uh, management future? So we are getting traction in the sense that we are seeing both the federal and Alberta and, and, and some other provincial governments too be interested in some policies they can put in place to start to support the build out of the sector. Where I would like to see more attention from government, and we haven't seen enough of it yet, I think is thinking comprehensively about what a strategy actually looks like for that sector, and hopefully doing it in close coordination with industry, because ultimately, with all of these things, if we're going to be successful in the low carbon transition, it's industry and business that's in the driver's seat and it's government enabled. So I think we have more work to do to get the government to think about how how do they approach this strategically beyond the announcement of specific sequestration hubs, for example, which is something that Alberta has done, or a specific investment tax credit, which is something that the federal government has done. Right. And I should say maybe just one last point on that. I should give the federal government 
uh, an acknowledgement that they did actually put out a carbon management strategy. I shouldn't lose sight of that. So they they did put out a strategy. I would call that a, an important start. Um, but I would also say that we need we need more detail. Like it was sort of a high level vision. That's good. Yeah. But we didn't get a sense from that of kind of what are the different elements of policy that they'll be looking to prioritize. And I assume there are some elements that uh, that clean prosperity thinks should be included in such a strategy. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, look, we think that uh, we actually think that making sure that the economic incentives are in place is the starting point for any good strategy. And so that it needs to uh, and you need to do that in the context of looking at what other jurisdictions are providing as well. So the U.S. is offering an incredibly generous package of incentives now through their Inflation Reduction Act. A starting point for a good strategy would be figuring out how we can match that um, both through investment tax credits, which we have. So that's good. But also the contracts for difference that I talked about earlier, yep. that will be an enabler of this sector. And the other thing that we would like to see from a demand generation perspective is uh, a, a government procurement program. Oh, good. Um, yeah, yeah particularly on the negative emission side where the government says, no, we are going to procure, pick a number, half a megaton or a megaton a year of negative emissions. We can yep. run this through a reverse auction. Um, and by the way, the government, I'm talking about the federal government now, though provincial governments could do this too. The federal government needs to do something to offset some of their very difficult to abate emissions within the defense sector, right? Like there are not a lot of alternatives to uh, fighter jets right now that are that are burned uh, lower carbon fuels. I mean, they I know they're looking at, at sustainable aviation fuel, but that's only a very small part of their response. So they're very likely going to need these kinds of negative emissions. And we think a procurement program that can really stimulate the sector's growth in Canada could be a great way to go. So that would be that would be sort of some policies. Of course, any strategy needs a whole range of policies. Um, and I, I won't go into those more unless you want to, but uh, I've talked mostly about the demand side. There's going to be supply side um, policies as well, and also kind of enabling environment pieces too. Well, you've given me something to add now. When I when I think about hard to abate sectors, I always think of in terms of yeah, air transportation and uh, yeah, and agriculture. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, defense. That's that's a that's another uh, very interesting one that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, it's going to be there. They're the good news is they are looking for solutions and, um, you know, they can play a really productive role in building up the sector. Right. OK, well, listen, the last the last area I want to drill down on, uh, and it was the last one that you mentioned there was with respect to sort of the political side of things, which I, I thought was really interesting. I think there is there's this perception um, that uh, a concern about climate change is the is the domain solely of the sort of center left of the political spectrum. Uh, it sounds like you're taking a, a, a different approach to that and and looking at this more broadly. Why don't you tell the listener a little bit about uh, what you're doing in this space? Yeah, I think the for us to be successful as a country yeah. in not only reducing emissions, but also taking advantage of the major economic opportunity that is present for us in the low carbon economy as Canadians, it's going to be critical that we get support across the political spectrum for uh, decarbonization. And so um, I think we have, we Clean Prosperity have a lot of past connections to the Conservative Party. I want to be clear, by the way, that we 
are independent and we do work with all parties. But I'm simply saying that we have spent, um, I think, more time focused and partnering and trying to help the Conservative Party, particularly federally, figure out a, a posture on this set of issues that respects um, a, a small C conservative mindset um, and addresses the the concerns that some of their constituents have that I think haven't always been taken seriously enough when it comes to climate policy. Mm-hmm. A good example, I think, would be rural populations and the impact that some policies have on, on, on rural residents of Canada, um, but tries to find a way forward that, um, that that party can stand behind and come to this conversation from a position of strength, which we think all parties should come to a position of strength. This is how we would do it. This is how we will transition Canada to a net zero economy. And we think not only is there are there options for that party, but we think that like in any important policy debate in Canada, it is very uh, productive and positive to have all of the parties from the different kind of ideological backgrounds that we have in Canada coming to the issue from their own perspective and providing ideas and a vision so that we get to a place through the political discourse of the most effective uh, and most kind of uh, generate the most buy-in. Like we're going to need everybody on this journey. This is a 30-year journey, you know, probably longer if we think about all the negative emissions work we're going to have to do beyond 2050. And that assumes we're successful in the net zero economy. So how can, so how do we bring everybody along? And uh, we just think that the conservative party and a a conservative mindset uh, is a really important mindset to bring to this. I mean, conservatives have historically been uh, a party that really understands, I think, the concerns of business, the concerns of rural Canadians, you know, how agriculture could be an opportunity in decarbonization, mm-hmm. um, you know, thinks about how to make sure that we're also concerned about energy security and energy affordability at the same time we're thinking about cleaning up our energy supply. Right. So I just think there's a ton that conservatives can bring. Well, anybody um, who's been, uh, you know, reading reading Canadian newspapers and the, and the, and the political pages, um, has seen the polling uh, right now uh, with respect to uh, you know, the federal party standings and the prospect of an election in the next year and a half, two years, I suppose. So I guess my question on this is, are you getting traction? Is it is a change in government uh, uh, going to going to uh, herald a, a, a significant negative change in terms of our approach to climate, or are you confident that uh, that uh, the conservative um, uh, government uh, uh, is cognizant uh, of these issues and prepared to uh, prepare to continue to, uh, to attempt to address climate. Yeah, well, let me let me start my answer just with a, a caveat that you know we work with all parties, and one of the commitments we make to them, whether it be conservatives, liberals, NDP, Greens, etc., is not to. Uh, is to keep the information they give us confidential sure. to yeah. advise them in, a, in an independent and helpful way. So I'll have to I'll have to give I'll have to answer with that context in mind. I think the key here is um, listening to what priorities you know Mr. Polyev has laid out and thinking about what policies um, you know fit within that mindset so you know the obvious example is that he's talked a lot about technology and how to support technology we do 
need a lot of technology development in Canada. Um, we do need greater support for it. He's talked about nuclear energy and you know, we at Clean Prosperity believe there's a lot of potential for nuclear energy and we ought to look at how we can support greater deployment of that technology. Um, he's talked about carbon capture, which we, you and I just talked about earlier, and we know that's going to be an important solution. So, you know, our mindset is how do we work within the um, sort of the confines of what each party sets out as where they how they want to handle this issue? And then, of course, we do offer independent and, and confidential advice on other things they may want to add to the mix beyond what their initial positions are, uh, uh, you know, on 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 their climate approach and so i'll have to keep those sort of uh confidential as you can probably appreciate Understood. but yeah. but uh but all to say that um i don't think i don't think anyone knows exactly what a polyev government would do on climate change yet it, there's we're not anywhere close to an election from what i can tell um and i think uh, all the opposition parties um are still thinking through what they're going to do so there's no certainty um but i i have a lot of hope uh that we will see strong climate policy out of all of the parties and it'll look different um but that that will include the conservative party right right all right michael the one thing i ask everybody on the way out the door is for a book recommendation to uh, to add to our uh, Flux Capacitor book club. So what book um, should the, the listener be uh, going out, getting their hands on and reading? What book do you want to add to our list? Yeah, it was, it was tough to pick only one. Um, there's a lot of good ones and a lot of great ones that have been mentioned by uh, past guests. But I was going to choose uh, Valley of the Birdtail. I don't know if that's been mentioned before on the podcast. Valley uh, of? Valley of the Birdtail. Oh, no. Yeah. So uh, this is a fairly recent book uh, written by uh, Andrew Stobo Snyderman and Douglas Sanderson, uh, who is a U of T professor. And um, I came across it in the last year. It is a fascinating story about two communities in Manitoba, one a First Nations community and the other one just across the river a community largely of actually Ukrainian refugees okay. um, who came to Canada in the 20th century. And it uh, tells the tale of how these communities interacted uh, over the last uh, you know, 100 years or so. And as it does, weaves in a lot of the um, incredible hardships uh, and challenges that First Nations com communities have uh, faced in Canada, whether it be um, you know, the residential schools or the inability to leave their reserves without permission, um, some of the discrimination they faced. Um, but it also tells the tale of how individuals in these communities, and this is based on real events, um, you know, found ways to bridge the divide across their communities in recent years. And it gives a, a path of hope for how we can um, you know, individually do our parts in the tall task of, of reconciliation in this country. So I found it uh, a very interesting and readable story from, from a human perspective, but also an important read um, about sort of Indigenous history and uh, the incredible challenges faced by Indigenous communities. What an amazing addition to our book club list. So it's Valley of the Birdtail, an Indian reserve, a white town, and the road to reconciliation by Andrew Stobel-Snyderman and Douglas Sanderson. That's the one. 
fantastic addition. Uh, Michael, as always, it's it's always great to chat. I uh, appreciate you taking the time to to uh, to join me today and to let me record at this time. <laughs> you got it. Thanks for thanks for having me, Francis. All right, thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future episodes. Please take the time to rate the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen, and let me know what you think of the Flux Capacitor. You can find me on Twitter or X as at Brad Bradley. The website for this pod is thefluxcapacitor.ca, and it includes links for this episode on the show page, this being episode 87. And while you're there, check out the book club page, which provides info on and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on the Flux Capacitor, including Michael's recommendation, Valley of the Bird Tale, An Indian Reserve, A White Town, and The Road to Reconciliation by Andrew Stobel Snyderman and Douglas Sanderson. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.